Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ben Carson, thanks for being on the Gary Hour. Thank you. Good to be back. See, I know that you're actually a psychopath. You're spot on. You are exactly right. You hide yourself in the darkness, in the shadows. Uh, you know, everybody has their own personality, and as people get to know me, uh, they know that I'm a hateful, pathological person. Hateful, pathological. I knew it. Uh, I would go after people with rocks and bricks and baseball bats and hammers, and of course, uh, many people know the story when I was 14 and I tried to stab someone. Wow, new presidents aren't like old presidents. You know, some of the people in your business, quite frankly, who like to try to stir things up. <laughs> sure, turn it around. Play the victim. I know this game. I think you're a fool if you think you know everything. Don't know everything, but I know you're psycho. That will be self-evident, so I don't really worry about that. It's much more difficult to dominate people who are armed than people who are not armed. Why is he telling me this now? Uh, I will tell you, I've spent 18 or 20 hours uh, intently operating on somebody. He likes to chop people up. I wasn't always like that. This week, we welcome independent horror filmmaker Katie Carmen Lehock. Now, if you're interested in making films of any kind, you'll probably get a lot out of this conversation because we go through the whole process from idea to screen. All right, hope you enjoy conversation with me, Matt Kaplan, and Katie Carmen Lehock. <laughs> 
You can check the show notes to see links to our films and whatnot. Yeah. leads you to things that you're not expecting and yeah why do you think you're geared towards making horror movies of all things what happened to you <laughs> that, yeah the, the, that's the question that's the million dollar question i i've tried to think about that i'm i mean i'm a lover of all kinds of movies like i love mm -hmm. really just watching movies and the experience and making movies the experience of making movies well i have a, um, I have a theory like uh, friends that are into heavy metal and really heavy stuff they're actually usually the most peaceful people Mm -hmm. And then it's like the friends that are into like hippie music and jam bands and stuff. They're the most passive aggressive, angry people. Of course. Yeah. So um, maybe you being into horror, you're just like the biggest peace activist. I think I'm a, oh yeah, I'm pretty nonviolent <laughs> peace, Nick, you know, considering compared to my films. For you sure. get your murder and rage out in your uh, art exactly. there. Yeah. yeah and I, I think it just, I don't know if it's a product of living in New York city or what, but the, it's just that the ideas that I come up with always seem to be in that, dark realm of things um yeah i don't know i'm never thinking of stories that are just like eh, you know yeah, it's always I, got some horror angle i i think so going on what you're saying gary i i because i'm have a foot planted heavily in the comedy world mm -hmm. and the horror world these days i feel like horror people like heavy metal people mm -hmm. are nerdy but pretty well adjusted and good nice people where yeah. comedy people are difficult oh messed up asshole so much of the time that doesn't make any sense to me yeah it is a very strange thing you, a lot of stand-ups are pretty messed up uh socially i wonder also if that i think often about you know being a filmmaker i've chosen this career path where i have to rely on like a lot of other people's help but as a stand-up comic i mean I know you guys do work with other people and groups and stuff, but as a stand-up, it's like, is it feast or famine? Like, you're the only person, and so you're competing with everybody else, and that's why, maybe? Or, you know, I wonder what where that comes from. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it is it is you're working alone, mostly, yeah. so you don't have to work with others. You don't work, work well with others, <laughs> that's the problem, yeah. Some people, yeah. I think that, and also I think very often they want all of the attention. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to get up on stage, I, I need to be liked right now so much. Or autonomy. Yeah. You know, just there's something great about being completely autonomous. You know, I mean, as a, oh God, I'm so glad I'm not a filmmaker or a politician because it requires so much money to even bring your ideas to fruition. Yeah. Is, is that a big annoying thing having to... It's a huge annoying thing. It's the worst part of it, right? It really is. And it's something that I regret not really being told and taught about in school like i did not take a film financing class at sva that was not part they of they didn't offer that they don't i was actually i was an editing major so maybe that was a class that they did offer for people who did direction specifically but mm -hmm. i was never exposed to that and it was like this i mean not a surprise obviously you know movies take money to make but they make it sound so easy there's just money everywhere get a yeah. grant get the money from this investor you can know, you walk us through the process the first thing you do is you find a script that you like and you want to bring to life, right? right? That's the very first thing? Yeah. So what happens after that? Is that when you start asking for money? 
Well, it, it might be already because if it's a script that you're trying to option from someone, of course they're going to want money for the option no, of right. you know getting. Basically, you're just kind of putting your your hand on it, saying, "I want to shoot this, and I want first option to to do it." Mm-hmm. Um, just to throw a little optimistic thought, it is getting easier with technology and the cheap equipment and stuff. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, not shooting on film is one major thing that doesn't cost a ton of money. I was yeah. starting to make movies back in the day where you'd buy. Really expensive film, probably screw up a lot of it and not get any useful footage from what you did get and pay the processing only, you know, you got to pay the, for the processing of the film to find out you didn't get all the shots that you got. You know, technology's definitely made that part mm-hmm. of it a lot easier. I can imagine the editing as well. And I would say that the autonomy, I've, you know, I've sort of fallen into because my projects are so low budget, having a hand in a lot of the... Mm-hmm. I hope in some ways, though, that I don't take over the project, which is what I worried about with disturbances. It's like helping in many ways, but I don't want the energy to, you know, I don't want to suck up all the energy. I want everybody to be involved. So hopefully it didn't get too No one massive. feels that way okay, at all. Good. Yeah. So yeah, quite the opposite. <laughs> so the first thing is you, you find a good script. Find a good script. And then do you try to raise money first or do you try to get a crew first? Um. Well, I'd say first for me, like creatively, is just to think, I mean, I try to go into reading about a script knowing I already, like if we're thinking millions of dollars or thousands of dollars, Mm because that's going to definitely alter what you have access to. And so I sort of start from that place. Like if a script requires too many special effects or too many locations, yeah, then then you you have to... If you have the knowledge of knowing I'm not going to have a million dollars to make it, you start looking at it and thinking about, okay, what can I pare down? Mm -hmm. Can I get the same idea across, but using, you know actors I'm working with already and a location I have, you know, it's trying to find ways to kind of compress and so turn down things. The script is good. You like it. And then you have to think about it practically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in my low budget, no budget realm of things, I then start to, you know, I talk about the project people I've worked with before and see if they're interested. Like if you read star um, Wars, you'd be like, I, this is great, but I just can't do it. Yeah. That it would be a little out of my, it wouldn't house. work. No. Yeah. Um, if I had easy access to money to make a movie that like that, I would take it as a challenge. You know? Yeah, but, but doesn't the money sometimes create more problems? Like there's something good creatively about the limitations? Well, yeah. If you have an unlimited bank account, it certainly opens a lot of Pandora's boxes where you could have, yeah, too many options and mm-hmm. you can't make decisions. Like I think it is easier to make those sorts of decisions when you don't have a ton of options. Um but I would like to experience that problem. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I'd like to see how that is, you know. But I yeah, mean, no matter what sum of money you have to work with, you still have to work within that budget. Absolutely. Nobody gets unlimited funds, as far as I know. No, unless you're maybe a trust fund kid or something. Right. You know, there seems like there's some special scenarios. But, but even J.J. Abrams has a budget limit. They're like, all right, buddy. Right. You know, you're making the new Star Wars, but. We got to cut you off at some point. Yeah. yeah, you can only use half of the money in the world. <laughs> We're only giving you two Wookies this time. Right. That's it. So, where are we? You you read the script, you think about it practically. Then, what do you do after that? You have to make changes to the script sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, working through the script, I'll try to do in tandem the storyboards, which is literally. Like I was talking before about sticking that wire in my brain to get all the images out. Me trying with my stick figures to draw storyboards, which Matt's seen my storyboards, and they really are they're, pretty they're basic. Wonderful. They're so hilarious. You, you actually physically draw out a storyboard. I do. You yeah. do each and every shot? Yeah. Each and every shot. And that, 
again goes back to like other limitations because I like to say I I start with like my wish list of exactly what I what I see and what I want it to look like. Yeah. And then I meet with the DP and he's like, okay, this is how many hours we have to work with. This is the equipment we have. And then we try to, again, thinking of what we want, now the DP, what's possible. The DP kind of handles the more technical part of the camera. Like you, you have your storyboard and you, 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 here's my storyboard. This is what I'm seeing. Can you make that happen? Or, exactly. or are you going to need 12 lights to exactly. do that? Exactly. All those things. So yeah. he kind of, the DP kind of handles the technical part. Exactly. Helping me figure out and our whole team figuring out how we're going to actually make that shot happen and knowing the different components of what has to be brought in. Like you're saying, if it's special lighting or mm -hmm. having other crew members to help with stuff. Yeah. So when you draw that, when you make a, um, storyboard, yeah. do you, is it on a timeline? Like is each shot that you draw out? Yeah. It's, it's almost like reading a comic book. Basically it's like okay. reading a comic version of the script and it's usually I'll use these templates that are, you know, eight and a half by 11 page of paper that just has six squares drawn in like frames. Like the and comic I, book app. Exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then I'll just go through and draw it in with the, you know, dire whatever direction there might be or yeah, I and try to use that as script? my, exactly. Yeah. And will you write where in the script each one is? Um, I think as I go through, I probably put what page of the script it is okay. just so that you have the correlation. But you should be able to read it and pretty much, well, I guess you'd still need the script for other directions because I don't put everything in there. But that you should sounds... be able to read it and still make sense of what the story is. Right, even yeah. with the stick figures. Even with the stick figures. Yeah. It sounds so laborious, but it also sounds like a really great way of flushing out your ideas. Yeah, I've just, in how I make my movies, I've just found that that's part of my whole process. Like I have to... I have to do that to get from that first step of seeing what I see in my mind's eye to actually being able to explain to other people what I hopefully will get on film. So after you do the storyboard, do you go to the DP next or do you go back to the writer and say, hey, this is what I did with your script? Usually you just go to the DP. It's a rare, it's a rare situation where I end up having the writer to really like bounce stuff off of. Actually, I shouldn't say that because... Most of the films that I've worked on, the two feature films I've worked on, the lead star of the film is my my co-producer and sister-in-law, Elizabeth Lee. So I do, uh -huh. but I also know that she's handling a lot of stuff on set, so I try not to get into the the nitpicky stuff. You know, mm -hmm. like actors, if they're acting, I want to let them do their thing and not get into technical, annoying stuff, you know, like well, get them out of the moment. I know every contract and every agreement is different and amendable, but sometimes I guess if you're buying a script from someone, you might have total rights to do whatever you want with it and then you don't even have to take it back to them yeah i mean i've i've never optioned a script that way but from what i hear about how it works in the industry it's like once you give those rights to somebody it's like that's it you're out of the picture you won't be on you will probably not be on set or referred to at all through the whole production process mm -hmm. which must be really scary as a writer because it's like you don't know well that's why every contract is different if yeah. you're a writer and you do want some creative say in it you could put it in that it has to get meet your approval yeah I think probably then they won't take it. I think w once they buy it, I think it's theirs, and the writer just has to take the paycheck and then just you know Hope that talk it, shit yeah. about the movie if they don't like it. <laughs> exactly. But I think there are very many famous cases like that where there'll be a, a novel, and then they might decide, you know, the, the scriptwriter might decide, like, you know what, I want to tell the story from a different character's point of view. Yeah. Like or just you know, we need we need more TNA in this. But yeah. it's so sketchy because if your name is on it as a writer and it's mm -hmm. a terrible film, it's it's bad for you as an author. Yeah. I think it happens all the time. That's, yeah. 
But like Matt's saying, that's when your Twitter campaign comes out to uh, separate yourself from the project and you come out and... Oh, that must be so awkward to be a writer and badmouth a film based on your book. Or, or, or just not feel confident in supporting and promoting your own work. Like, that's got to be a a not good feeling, yeah. Well, then, yeah, you should. But you're making money as a writer in Hollywood, though, I guess. Uh. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's the other side of it. When you are making films, when you are trying to release a, a, a major book and money is involved, then that's, you know some of your art might be challenged there. Yeah. And it, it seems like from stories I've seen, like nobody's ever 100 completely happy with any movie that's ever released. Well, it is hard to adapt. I know like from, from books, there's very few movies that do a uh, book justice. Yeah. I like mentioning, I don't know if you guys have seen the film version of World War Z and read the book, but the book is so vastly different from the movie. It's like, I, I mean, I think they're both very strong in themselves independently, but it's it's a case where, like, the book is just totally, totally different than the movie. And did the movie, is the movie any good? I, I, I enjoyed it. It got a lot of bad press in its production, and I think... But I, it's just totally different than the book. Totally different, mm-hmm. yeah. But still enjoyable as its own thing. But, you know, I, I, was it Max Brooks that wrote the book? I think wrote the book. Why would they even um, bother to pay the writer, then? If it was totally different. I know with copyright stuff, it's usually about having to prove what's different and not what's the same. So maybe they just felt like the idea was just going to be so similar that they would have, yeah. you know, they needed the rights. Or maybe they started off thinking it would be closer. Also, if it's a popular book, you get that buzz going as well. Right. That's a big part of it probably sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Because I know the book was very popular mm-hmm. before those movies came out, which is why a lot of people, I think, were on it and ready to be like, oh, this is not looking good. Yeah. I, well, a lot can change in the editing process, but we're not there yet. No, we're not. Where are we? Um, storyboard? I've storyboarded. I've met with D- the DP. We figured out what is actually possible from the crazy ideas I've come up with. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes the, the DP says that's we don't have the funds or resources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In my case, that happens occasionally, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but we're also, you know, the crews that I have worked with in the past know that we're working in an indie atmosphere. And mm-hmm. so it's all about using what we do have to the best results. Like yeah. We definitely try to maximize all the stuff that we do have. And you edit your own films? I do, yeah. That must really help in terms of directing. I couldn't imagine directing and not even, at least knowing how to edit. I think it, I mean, in a practical way, it saves a lot of time. For example, on my last feature off-season, we had a really, really small crew. And the first few days, we were slating everything. Mm -hmm. And it would take so much time just to do something as simple as slating. And for people that don't know, that's like the little clapper thing that you see at the beginning of each shot, which is used in editing to match audio to video. Um, but since I was editing and I know the script backwards and forwards and everything, mm-hmm. I, we basically just eliminated slating everything in the shoot. And we saved, I don't even know how many hours we saved probably doing that. But, you know, that was a situation where it worked because I was actually editing the footage. But if we sent that off to an editor, they'd be like, what the hell did you do? You know, there it would be a major, a major problem. Major, And I would imagine also as a director, you're kind of editing in your mind oh, while definitely. you're filming. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And like if we're on set doing something and I'm, usually standing there like thinking to myself okay this is the, the shot that just came before this do we need to cut in this way you know like we'll change stuff on set if i know oh already already got that from that angle we don't need it again from this angle exactly or, you know, that kind of stuff yeah i would imagine that saves a lot of time definitely yeah well, many people do believe that the director should not edit that is true i think the people that believe that are 
the editing editors union could be. Well, yeah. I've heard people that you know they say editors shouldn't even see the script. You know that they should just go off the footage, and it's like well, you need like a little bit of a game plan. You people say some... the darndest things. They do, don't they? <laughs> I, I definitely feel like at that point the editor, unless he or she is super talented, is so removed. Um, I mean, may, I guess it depends, but I feel like how many editors really understand performance from an actor? You know, because they might know the shot. Oh, this looks good. This makes sense. But mm-hmm. are they really picking up on this performance is the best performance of those? You know, six takes. Well, and I'd say in, in a us- in a typical production, there will be like copious notes about what takes the director liked and whatnot, and okay. so they usually will go to that stuff as their priority shots and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But you're right. You know, they're not looking at the same stuff that someone who directed or wrote or whatever, you know, would be looking at. Because I know too well as an editor, like, I will look at a shot and if there's some stupid technical issue, but the performance is great, you know, then you have a moment to decide, do I use this shot because of the great performance, which usually you will. Right. Because people will be so floored by the great performance, they won't be looking at the flaw, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's a decision you kind of have to take. I will say, though, I can understand, though, separating the editor from the rest of the production in terms of thinking maybe you'll get some wildly cool idea that you didn't maybe think of before and so i like that idea of someone bringing like a new possibility or perspective into it. something that you wouldn't think of yeah yeah because i know you know reading the script and getting that image locked into your head sometimes maybe you Limit, do miss limiting. out yeah like you could miss out on things that could be cool ideas. but can't you have both can't you have a strong idea and then bring in someone else to be like, oh, that's, I like your idea, but what we could also do this? Yeah, I, I mean, I try throughout the process. In fact, during disturbances, our DP, Jeff, who's also an editor and was helping out with some of the editing, came over to help out on some like last editing things. And he had suggestions like on the spot that I think really helped the episodes sure. as well, too. So I try throughout the process, we're I'm sending Matt and all the crew like rough cuts and this is what I'm thinking, but we can do this. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of back and forth. So I'm not working totally isolated. I try to get feedback because mm-hmm. obviously you want the audience to enjoy it. That's what's key. So. That's great. I'm a total believer in, uh, you know, being open to other people's ideas. Absolutely. I, I read, mean, you have to. <laughs> even Chris Rock was such a great stand up. He'll uh, bring some of his favorite comedians in when he's about done honing his hour. He'll have some of his favorite comedians come and watch him and help punch up his act. Mm. So they all kind of help him write a little yeah. bit and edit. Because, yeah, it's when you're involved in your own thing, you do kind of get a tunnel vision sometimes. Definitely. That can be limiting. I can admit I, I have gotten that in the past. But, yeah, it's good to be surrounded with a crew of people who are creative and good with positive, uh, encouraging remarks. What's the word I'm looking for? And you're giving, like affirmation exactly but or or even giving like negative feed constructive criticism that's exactly Mm -hmm. what i was looking for you know even if it's something negative it's done in a way where like you're saying it's like i like your idea but maybe we could try this or you know it's always well they say that's a good leadership quality people that can listen to other opinions and take them or not yeah right Sometimes people, they just have a weird opinion, or sometimes their own ego might be played into it. I'm sure yeah. Chris Rock isn't bringing in uh, a comic who's jealous of him. Right, exactly. Yeah. No, they would not be uh, there, for sure. Yeah. And also, the comic that's helping Chris Rock is doing it pretty selflessly, because they're not getting credit. Right. But that's then true. they can always go back to Chris Rock and ask him. Hey, can I open for you? Or, or just what is your opinion on, on this? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. People helping each other. Yeah. That's, that's the way to and go. That's, as, a, as a community of artists, that's such a big part of what we have and what we do together. 
Definitely. Yeah, I think that that's where things are headed. I mean, not everyone's going to work well with each other, but indie filmmaking and indie sort of creating in general is definitely growing as the technology becomes cheaper and big budget Hollywood is going down and big budget music industry is going down. Everything's kind of changing. Mm-hmm. One, one final thing on editing, if we're wrapping that section, mm-hmm. is... Um, I think what a lot of people don't realize also when it's uh, when there is a lot of money involved with studios, yeah. a lot of times it's the studio's decision to edit something. And that's why very often you can go see a movie and then be like, the last half an hour was just didn't make any sense. It just jumped from here. Or like, where did that character come from? And that's just because the studio's like, we need to cut 20 minutes off. Yeah. And, and you know, the viewer never is aware of that. They just think, they just come out of the movie thinking like, it just didn't make sense. Right. It ended way too quick or whatever. Yeah. And I think that happens often in, in big features. That must be really hard, just letting go of your baby like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read Zach Galifianakis, he had his uh, comedy, comedy Central is notorious, at least in the past, for taking stand-up comedians and cutting it up. Oh, okay. So they take you out of order. Mm-hmm. So Zach Galifianakis did this thing where he started, and he, every like five or ten minutes he'd take off an article of clothing, uh, so they couldn't disrupt his sequence. That's hilarious. <laughs> so if you watch it, it's pretty funny because he's he comes on like all this bulky sweater, then he takes the sweater off, and very clever. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear that they do that. You'd think Comedy Central would respect the idea of the set being, you know, like it's storytelling in its own way. It's got its own mm-hmm. kind of uh, mood to it. Yeah, and they also punch up the laughs too. Really? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. There's probably some you know studio head that believes he or she knows what's going on and. You know, thinks that, oh, you know, this kind of joke is hot right now, so let's put it there. Right, put it early, yeah. I mean, as an audio person, I can really tell. Yeah, I watched uh, Richard Pryor live at the Sunset Strip. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's laughs, and then they focus in on two women, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you hear them laugh really close to the microphone. Yeah. I'm like, it's obviously punched up. They didn't just like focus in on those women and put a mic in front of them. So it's, uh, it's just became very clear to me. Oh, these laughs are all manufactured. They're right. put in afterwards. It kind of looked like he bombed to me in that. If you watch live at the sunset strip, it's like, it seems to me like there's a lot of added laughter. Hmm. It was I such a very real cut looks like. Yeah. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Cause it's out there somewhere probably a super raw performance. I think people were probably freaked out at the time, but respect it later. That's well, that's what, you know, like can laughter is all about mm-hmm. older sitcoms. And it's so hard to watch. Like once you're watching an older TV show and once you become aware, aware of it, it's like, I can't even watch this. It's all yeah. you hear. Yeah. yeah. That's why Seinfeld, they always shot in front of a live audience mm-hmm. right. to get that laugh. And I think, uh, I think it was all in the family. And I know we're, we're getting a little off topic here. I think they originally shot in front of a live audience and then they stopped doing that. But what they would do was they would show the final cut to a live audience and record their laughter. That's so weird. So they would put it in still. Weird. So it was kind of real in a certain way, but not at the time. That's kind of interesting. I think, I think I have that right. I mean, that, that, kind of, that kind of brings me back to part of the creative process of like when you, when you make something and you watch it with other people, you kind of empathetically get their reactions. Mm. I know this from music. If I play something for somebody with them in the room, I can feel their reaction. And they don't have to say anything. I could feel when something works and when something doesn't. Mm-hmm. Do you have that experience with your films, like before they're finished? Or even maybe if you're watching them with the DP, for example, you're watching an edit. 
do you often feel like, oh, that doesn't work, even though you felt like it worked in the editing room? Yeah, I think, you know, you kind of are able to gauge people's body language or, uh, I don't know, it, it definitely is kind of um, a subliminal thing that you mm -hmm. pick up on, like when you're a creator of that kind of stuff, yeah. for sure. Um, I will say, though, that when stuff screens, like if my film screens somewhere, though, and usually it will be after everything's done and said, so it wouldn't really change anything, but I, I don't necessarily like sticking around with the audience. I get very nervous. Um, but again, like if I do stick around, I like seeing where people end up, like when are people shifting in their seats or if people laugh at something that I didn't expect, like that's always really interesting to me. Like, oh, they found that funny, you know. It's it must be tricky because every audience is also different. There's so many variables. Yeah, because everyone's bringing their own personal experiences to it and that's sort of what they're reacting to you know, mm -hmm. when they see certain things on screen. It's whatever they've experienced that's reminding them of something. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the screening later. Okay. We're not there yet because we're, not we're there going yet. through the process. Okay. Yes. So, you've made the storyboard, you've talked to the DP, the DP kind of works out the technicals. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Then we really start crewing up, yeah. We start looking for, for actors, either people we've worked with before or start mm -hmm. holding auditions. Um, usually uh, the DP that I work with has a crew himself or herself who they work with. Mm -hmm. So I try to rely on keeping those relationships because people just work a lot more easily when they've worked together in the past. Um, I noticed before when I said DP, I said he. And I caught myself immediately, but it's just like built in. I know. I don't, I don't blame you for that. Mm -hmm. It's a sad side effect of the, the industry. I myself just like consciously realized I was saying it and tried to correct myself. You know, I've never worked with a woman DP and I would really, really like to. Mm -hmm. um, you hear that, ladies? Yeah. Contact Katie. Send me your reels. I want to work with the ladies. <laughs> um, it yeah. is weird. There's a lot of, I know in the audio industry, there's very few women as well. I don't know if it's just like technical stuff that they're not attracted to or just not nurtured to go for that kind of thing. Yeah. I think unfortunately it's the latter. And I only say that because I'm a lady and I'm super technical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would love to do audio editing stuff someday. That'd be really fun. Well, if um, you do film editing, it's really easy because it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I've dabbled with it. Actually, that those were classes I took at SVA. They offered us Pro Tools classes and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. So That's that what really we're fun. recording on right now. Oh, is it? Yeah. Excellent. So I'm a, a little familiar. I mean, I, I'm, I'm learning Final Cut, and it's super easy coming from a background in Pro Tools. Yeah, no, I, I remember the, the interface being very similar. So yeah, that's great. very easy. And yeah, I guess if you're editing, you know, editing sound, editing picture has a lot of similarities, you know? Yeah. I actually studied the nuances and things. Yeah, I actually studied film in college. Ah, that was okay. that was my ma part of my major. So are you still making movies yourself or are you just sticking mostly with music or Um I want I have some stuff that I've written that I want to do but uh, I don't really have a camera and I've talked to Matt about doing some shorts or sketches and stuff but there's only so many hours in the day. That is true. You know? <laughs> Well, yeah, knowing Matt, you've certainly got a good crew of people who would be willing to help if you ever want to shoot something. And I really like your directing, too. So yeah. oh, I'm glad you did. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like I'm still trying to hone my specific style, but I try to, I try to make movies in the same vein of the movies that I've grown up watching and loved. So. And any good artist will always want to continue to improve and, and grow. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing because as a director... You're almost like a music producer, where some music producers have a distinct sound, like Rick Rubin, Phil Spector. They have a very distinct sound, the wall of sound for Phil Spector. And, and with directors, obviously, Hitchcock has a very... Uh, but sometimes music producers... I'm trying to compare music producers to film directors, but sometimes music producers 
kind of just do whatever fits the band. And you can go both ways with it. Like, you can do whatever fits that script, and people might not realize, oh, wow, she just did that comedy, and it was great, but she also did this horror that was great, but they're so different. Right. No, I think it's good to have variety if it's something that, you know, if the projects are things that interest you, certainly, you know? I know, but it's as a, from a business perspective, I could see it's probably good to have one distinct style mm-hmm. so people come to you for that. Yeah. It's, it's hard to navigate. I guess you just have to do what's true for yourself. Yeah, hey, if, if people were, were coming at me with all sorts of fun projects that are not horror, like, I'd be happy about that, too. You know? mm-hmm. Like, I feel like even a commercial project, you could probably get something out of that might be useful in another project, you know? Like, it's all, like Matt said, you know, it's all, it's all about learning and growing creatively and professionally, as now much how, as you can. How important is, a, I would imagine, a, a working with the same DP is important to getting that cohesiveness with your many projects? Yeah, and I we were really lucky to get Jeff Gibson as our DP for Disturbances, and then he also hooked it, hooked us up with another Jeff, differently spelled Jeff Enkler, who is our camera op for the shoot. Mm-hmm. And um, so I mean, they were describe, just seamless. Yeah, can you describe the difference between a DP and a camera op? Um, sort of, kind of like what we were talking about before, where the DP is more is like the technical. In, ter- in terms of my relation to the DP, he figures out like the technical, but also the artistic aspect of how to capture what I've been trying to envision. Yeah. Whereas the camera operator really is like the nuts and bolts on set. Like, okay, this is what we're getting done. We're going to move the camera here. We're going to set the lights up here. Like they, they work together in tandem. I'd say Jeff being more of the creative side of deciding like shot setup and framing and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And Jeff is really like in there aiding other Jeff. But, you know, really on the on the ground, setting stuff up, moving things, that kind of stuff. So. Right. So as a director, you're deciding what the shots look like, and you're also directing the actors. Exactly. Yeah? Yeah. And what about lighting? I mean, how much do you have to know about lighting as a director, or is that the job of the DP? I mean, you need to know in so much as knowing what your what style you're looking for and having, like, some understanding of how crazy it might be involved, because, you know, you don't want to bring some ridiculous idea of a setup to your DP who's just like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, Mm -hmm. obviously we're not going to have these gigantic lights to set up outside a window or, you know, like things like that. So having a working knowledge is good, but then, you know, the actual practice of it, that's all, that's all in their, in their responsibility. Now, how do you communicate to them that it, it looks not quite right? You know, you, you have to say it's not quite right, but how do you make it right? How do you communicate that to them? Um, I mean, on set, when we're setting up shots, like we'll, we'll be going through the storyboards in our shot list and we'll say, okay, we're doing scene, scene, whatever shot, whatever. This is what we think is going to be the setup and he'll set it up mm-hmm. and then we'll have a moment to review everything together. And it's like what you're saying before, you know, like, you know, this is a great idea, but can we try it this way? Can we, you know, can we get a little bit of a different angle or, you know, like, so would you, would you say something as specific as we need more backlight? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, in most cases, I trust them, and they are, know so well what they're doing. Like they'll catch that stuff even before I see it. But, but yeah, if if I feel it's very different in style or from what I had met, imagined for the look, like we have that conversation before. So, from what little I know about filmmaking, if you're if you want your actor to blend in with the back, would you say to the DP, "I don't want the actor to pop out so much," mm-hmm. or would you say less backlight? because I want him to blend into the back. 
I guess it could be a mix of both. I don't know. There, it's just like a creative decision that you can choose to make, you know? Okay. Similar outcome based on those two things, but it's just in the moment, yeah, mm-hmm. what you feel is correct. And would that, be an, the story. would that be an insult to the DP to say, oh, we need less backlight? It shouldn't be, no, because it, it all goes back to the collaboration of, you know, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make the best project. So mm-hmm. if you find the right people, they are not offended by that. They're like, they want more ideas. They want it to be collaborative. And they, you know, I guess there's, there's a definite level of trust that's there because, you know. Sometimes when I'm mixing people, and uh, when I'm mixing people's music, often people say, oh, something, and they'll try to describe what they want, and then I'll know how to translate that, mm. whether it's compression, EQ, or reverb, or something like that. Yeah. But then sometimes you get a lot of people that they mess with things on their own a little bit, and then they'll say, oh, that needs more compression. And then I'll say, okay, what are you looking for? Because maybe they're not using the term correctly. It's very technical to say, hey, it needs more compression. Right. And I could do that, but sometimes, I don't know, maybe it's my ego, but I feel like I'm being made a monkey. Okay, I'll turn this dial for you. I will say I've I've edited other people's projects before where I was treated that way and I did not like it. Because mm-hmm. I feel as an editor, I'm not a button pusher. Like, you know, as Matt was saying, like you can have a lot of control as an editor. And the same thing as being a music producer. Like you're saying, you know, compress something, but maybe it's their meaning like, you know, I want this to sound like we're in a smaller room or something like that. Exactly, but but yeah. like maybe creatively, you know, that's not right for everything else or, you know. Well, also, it's funny because compression can make something sound totally different depending on your compression settings. I could make something punch really hard or I could make something smooth out so it doesn't punch. Yeah, but they, I'd say that they need to trust you, you know, as the engineer to know which way to go and yeah. you kind of urge them that way you know maybe that's not what they want at first but you you, you urge them and nudge them you know yeah that's and then was, they see the light of day <laughs> yeah that's why i would i would say well what exactly do you mean but i guess that's why i asked about that question with the dp about blending into the back or popping yeah because i know if you add more backlight the subject pops mm-hmm. right yeah so, no and I, yeah you have to have somebody that's gonna say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Gonna be 
especially when we're doing like these indie film shoots, you have so little time to just like sit around and discuss stuff. Like you got to make decisions. You got to, mm-hmm. you got to work well with others and that's how it gets done. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back to our timeline here. Yes, where are we on the timeline now? So you've made the storyboard. You've discussed with the DP and the camera op. Mm-hmm. You're getting your crew together. Right. You've got your cast. crew together. Yeah. Your cast, your crew. And then you have to try to raise funds or see if everyone will work for free. In my case, it's usually seeing if everyone will work for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's different schools of the whole fundraising thing, you know, especially now that there's crowdfunding and mm-hmm. that comes into play in terms of Kickstarter and yeah, Indiegogo. you know, do you do you want to make some material already so you can show people, hey, this is what we're doing, we need more money, or you know, do you want to really start from scratch? This is the idea. Come join the the, the crew and help us help us build this thing. You know, there are definitely a few ways that you can go about it. Um, I mean, real investors they want to. I'd say if you're going to an actual film investor that has real money, they want to get in all the way at the beginning of that process too. Um, they do because they yeah. want creative input. Yeah, and they want to make sure their investment's solid. And so part of what they do is making sure they try to, I mean, not making sure, I, this is probably a debate amongst filmmakers, but they will try to bring in people who they believe will help the project. Help the project in what way? Being successful, executed in a professional way. That like kind in of a business thing. marketing kind of way? or Yeah, or even just an actual production, like crew kind of way. Okay. You know? Um, so creative way. Yeah, in a creative way. So which, they might want to replace your DP. That's what I'm saying. That's like a big thing. You know, then you're then as the filmmaker, you're set with the decision making process of like, okay, do I want to get the money to make this movie, or do I want to possibly work with this DP who may be oil and water? You know, like right. we may not work together and may screw the whole project to begin with. And so, would it be advantageous to go to an investor before you even storyboard? If you have those outlets, definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you want to be armed with as much information about the project as you can be, though, because they want to know what they're buying into is like a solid idea, in, and you should be ready to go out and shoot it like the next week, really. You should try to have as much of your ducks in a row. And sometimes that will be having talent in place if you have like big names or something like that. Investors love that. They always want to see if you have like an actual name in your project. Oh yeah, um, of course. But yeah, their their only concern is making their money back. They just want to know the investment's solid and they're going to make a return and mm-hmm. they'll try to find ways to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be- for better or worse, I guess. Have you done a uh, Kickstarter or Indigo uh, crowds? I have, you yeah. have. I've done one Kickstarter that was for a small amount of money for my second feature film, Off Season, mm-hmm. which I think we raised. It's been a little while, maybe around eight thousand dollars. Okay, I always wonder with Kickstarter if there's just random strangers perusing the site looking for cool things. There are. There are, huh? Yeah, there are these angel investors out there that if they if it's just something that they're interested in you know click a button they make a donation and the money's people with money just looking to add yeah i I need to find more of those people Mm -hmm. but i i hear they're out there yeah (laughs) it's so cool i was always wondering that about kickstarter every creative project i have i'm like oh i could do a kickstarter but then like making the video and doing the kickstarter is so much work and that's what i learned from that process it's like it's it's a job in itself just doing the kickstarter it is right yeah Yeah. like nowadays you have to hire somebody to run your kickstarter you need a kickstarter to make a kickstarter that's exactly the problem it's like this chicken and egg (laughs) thing it's like well i can't pay you because you're raising the money that we're using to make this project you know we should start a uh, pre-kickstarter.com it's a website (laughs) where you raise money to have a kickstarter it's ridiculous. It's a, but it's an example. I'm I worry that 
Kickstarter and crowdfunding is, you know, it's it's great, but it also is harder because as it's, more people are using it, yeah, it's flooded and it's harder for your projects to see daylight in that way, you know. And that mm-hmm. means you have to do that much more work promoting and all that stuff for the Kickstarter. Unfortunately, starting to see people who are raising money and then they never actually do anything with it. I've or had they, that they, they don't finish and it's Don't it's they have tough. to give the money back? Mm-mm. They don't. I think I did see something that was changed on Indiegogo that's offering refunds now because I think it was such a problem. Yeah. Um, well, people have to get, if people give a certain amount of money and they're promised something in return and yeah. they don't get that, then they, they're entitled to their they should refund. Be. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I also, I know the, these sites have gotten so flooded and I've also read that, um, who's the guy from Garden State, Zach Braff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He did a Kickstarter. Yes. Which got him a lot of bad publicity. And I'm not sure how to feel about it because obviously he has access and he has money, but it is an open source forum. Do you have an opinion on that? I do. Um, I I understand someone like him may have a project that's like a passion project that I find it so hard to believe though that Zach Braff couldn't get funding for this film in some other way, shape, or form. You mm-hmm. know, like, and right. I and I know I personally don't have a ton of money to be throwing at Kickstarter stuff, and so it just goes back to the argument of well, people are donating to this project now, and they could have been putting that money towards projects that really, really, really needed, needed the funding. You know, right? I mean, things were getting done before Kickstarter. It's true. People yeah. were finding ways to either, you know, whatever sell some of their own stuff or, or whatever, use their own money or, or beg for money or something like that. Yeah. So, Zach Braff I mean, was given blowjobs in a 7-Eleven uh, Quickie Mart how parking much, lot. To how much were they costing? <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, and it's also, for me personally, I, I get upset when I see someone trying to raise money for something and it's like, man, I saw you buy six craft beers at the bar the other day. Mm. Right. You know, yeah. now you're asking for money. It's like, so it's... That, that it's also tough. gets me, yeah. yeah. I've also seen now people having problems where they've donated even like a small amount of money. They've donated to someone's Kickstarter project and it's become this quid pro quo where then when they're raising money, they, they come back to you and they get really offended if you don't actually contribute anything. Yeah. So it also creates this other sort of social problem for people, it seems. Yeah, you have to either donate to nothing or donate to everything. Right. It's really tricky. And I will say, I've been burned by some projects and i remember i remember those projects and yeah. those people and i'm like do you want to call them out Wait, i don't want to call anybody out but i remember and i when they asked me for money a second time i'm like i don't know you know you didn't come through that first time mm-hmm. so why would i give you money again yeah i also look sometimes at the way they budgeted things mm. and sometimes you're like you, you didn't need all that money for that you know it's yeah with with little budget you can be creative with disturbances we chose not to ask for any money mm-hmm. uh, so the, the the four of us the originals me june uh jessica and artie we put our own money into it uh-huh and thankfully katie and everyone else did work for free mm-hmm. uh did, did not ask for money put in their own time but yeah it was important to us that like hey if we're gonna do this we can find a way and we we kept the budget ridiculously low yeah i mean maybe a thousand dollars for four episodes which is that's really crazy yeah because we we, yeah. we figured out a way to make it work and, exactly and, and yeah, yeah people did volunteer their time and a lot of time and we're very thankful for that but yeah we probably could have raised you know or asked to raise three four five thousand mm-hmm. dollars and come out with something similar mm-hmm. absolutely how do you stop me if this is too personal but if you were given $5,000, where would the money go? Like, where's the first place in a, making a film that the money should go to? 
craft services? I mean, I you you ask me, and yes, that should be like one of the number one, you know, key, the easiest way to keep people happy on set: feed them, keep them hydrated. Like it's a really simple thing to do. And I hear horror stories all the time about directors that don't have crafty. I'm like, what are you doing? You gotta right. you gotta feed these people. Oh, that's um, funny. I was actually joking, but you no, did point. no, yeah. it, it's it's sadly something that has to be brought up, and it really shouldn't be. Okay, but it doesn't cost um, five thousand. No, eight thousand. Well, I'd say. I mean, my my goal with any project, if I have actual money, is like to pay the cast and crew first and foremost because they contribute so much of their time, and I know that they're all so you know very worthy of payment and probably far more than I could afford anyway. But um, that would be my my first choice. But second would be either equipment, renting equipment, or mm-hmm. um, location fees, that kind of stuff. Like really necessary stuff right equipment i could see making sure you get really good equipment and maybe even money financials wise that's certainly the most expensive of the stuff crafty we can do like we had june naito who is a producer on disturbances uh wound up being the chef for the show and so you know we'd have like a giant vat of chili going one day and which was really nice because you don't really get home-cooked meals on set very often already cooked a meal as well he made did he oh yeah pasta oh yeah that was good yeah, yeah that's smart way so to yeah, save we, yeah we saved so we so saved much a lot in that money respect. just yeah creating but people big, were big really meals. happy that we yeah. had like a nice real meal for people to eat instead mm-hmm. of just having like pizza. the cold slice it of pizza or so, the bagel so yeah. much of a difference when when you're i've been on set where your meal is like a granola bar or, or like, mm-hmm. you know, Cheetos. It's like, I don't eat Cheetos ever. I don't want it for my lunch. Yeah. yeah. And especially when you're asking people to do stuff for free, it's like, it's the least you could do to keep them fed and happy, you yep. know, and water make, and coffee. Yeah. Yeah. All, it's well, not major. It's, it's very <laughs> customary to see a lot of junk food out mm-hmm. on sets. And it's always so hard to not eat it. Cause there's a lot of standing around. Yeah. It's, it's terrible because it's long hours. Everyone woke up earlier than they usually would. So yeah. everyone's tired and they're just like living on sugar all day from one sugar fix to the next instead of like, hey, let's give mm-hmm. them, you know, instead of bagels, which I think we did and which is kind of customary, but like a bagel with cream cheese is not the best way to start your day. You know, I was going to say though, we, we also didn't do the thing where it was like, oh, we've got these dozen bagels for breakfast. And then at lunch, it's like, oh, it's the leftover bagels. Right, right, you know? right. We, we, did, we did have a different meal. <laughs> yeah, choice. exactly. Bagels for breakfast. Yeah. I mean, that's customary. Guys. Bagels yeah. for breakfast. Yeah. But then you have pizza for lunch and all you bait is bread and cheese all day. <laughs> right. And then the leftover pizza from lunch will be what's for dinner. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So by the time the movie's done and released, everyone's dead. Pretty much everyone, yeah, hard Good attack. Publicity. And, yeah. Everyone's gained weight. It's like oh, that character gained so much weight or lost weight, depending <laughs> on how you shot it. Right. Where are we on the timeline? Have you been keeping track? You've raised the money. We've raised the money. Mm-hmm. So now we have the money. You have the money. You have the crew. Um, you have the actors. You have the DP. You, have you the lock camera. it all in. You book the dates. You lock it down. Locations. Is that what's next? Well, yeah, exactly. Hopefully you've gotten your locations figured out and all the insurance or fees or whatever fun stuff all straightened out oh what do you mean insurance and fees you know some places if it's like a legit production and you're not shooting at your friend's house you know they'll want insurance because especially in horror films there's fake blood involved mm-hmm. or uh that kind so of you have stuff to get they want to make sure you're not going to trash their house oh insurance for the place yeah exactly just to right. cover anything that might happen or, or just if anyone gets hurt if you're, oh, yeah, if you're using well. you know yeah. someone else's location yeah. I don't know where this stands legally, but I worked on a film recently where they airbnb this whole house. We and did I, that, actually. Well, Airbnb has its own insurance, so if something happened, I think you'd be covered. The people would be covered. 
I th- right? think that's true. I think the owners of the house would be. But I, I want, I'm sure their insurance would find some way of being like, but what were they doing in that house exactly? You know, uh-huh. and like if it was a restricted activity, then they'll say, oh, we're not going to reimburse you. So when you say insurance, do you mean insurance for you or insurance for the other people where the loca- that own the location? It could be either, yeah. Um, I mean, we've rented or shot in a location once where we had to have insurance just in case anything were to happen on the property. For and it was you? literally covering our LLC. So if an actor hurt themselves and decided to sue you? Exactly. We wouldn't personally be, be sued. And that's actually why you set up an LLC anyway, but that's getting to into yourself, boring yeah. business stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in most cases, you'd have to get something that's covering the mm-hmm. location so that whoever owns that location is not going to be held responsible if something were right. to happen. So then you you get the locations. Then you have to decide the shooting days and where you, what you're going to shoot and try to maximize the hours and time exactly. and crew, right? And somewhere in that mix also, I should mention, like I, we had a, an amazing set designer, prop mistress, um, Patricia Buckheit. Yes, you got it. Right? She's yeah, amazing. Yeah. But um, bringing that, that person into the process um, while you're doing all the pre-production of storyboarding and shot listing and stuff, mm-hmm. that's also really important because... That also can affect your budget if you're doing something that's like crazy art direction or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like all these people will get together and figure out the game plan for when you're actually on set. Because like we said, when you're shooting, it's like you're there. You got to have a plan, get it done, try to stay on schedule. Maximize every, exactly. maximize the location, the times, the actors' exactly. time. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So as a director, I mean, this must be tricky because you're trying to get great performances out of every actor. And you're dealing with fragile egos, right? So they say. I would imagine this would be maybe the hardest part of your job on an emotional level because you want to push people and you want to get a good film, Mm. but you don't want to make any enemies. You don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. How do you do that? How do you know how much to push somebody before they break? Mm, I think it goes back to almost what you were talking about, like being a producer of things and just like reading emotions and reading someone's body language and stuff. Mm. I mean, I think if you're working with someone and they're not happy, they usually will make it pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, though, in the past, the projects that I've worked on, usually, I usually don't come into those types of situations. It's rare that I have to really like push someone because I try to always get people that I know are going to get on set and just rock it out, you know? Because again, it goes back to, again, like we just don't have time to be sitting around helping someone find their motivation or whatever, you know, like they got to be prepared and get in there. But, but yeah, like, I mean, you gotta, sometimes you do have to push. And sometimes don't you have to work with an actor that you're not experienced with? It's their, your first time working with them. So you're not sure if they're going to deliver. Yeah. Um, in particular, I know that when we shot off season, we had a child actor and like, I'm not super familiar with working with kids. And so that was like an interesting mm-hmm. thing to try and find a way to, work on their you know use a language that they understood and to right. still try to get those emotions and, and i know when they use kid actors they'll often try to use twins mm-hmm. so they can pick and choose or, them out. Yeah. yeah well that's also going back to like union rules and stuff because there's all these rules about how mu- much they can work and you know rightfully so yeah. but i think that that's why they do that like full house famously with the twins mm-hmm. you know well you did that with the first episode of disturbances there was that young little blonde girl maybe yeah. 10 or 11 or something fantastic she was really great in it she's a great actress no she's fantastic and she was yeah she needed very little direction she arrived on set and was prepared and how did you how do you find a child actress 
Well, she in particular was someone that Matt had worked with on a previous. Yeah, we had uh, worked together on, yeah. a, on a film, uh, on a horror film last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I had met her and her mother, Stacy, stage um, mom. For yes, but like not what you would consider a stage mom. Is that She's, a derogatory term, stage mom? I, I think, think it so. Is. Yeah. yeah. Is it? yeah. Okay. In in Stacy's case, she was just she's just chill. She's uh, you know an artistic soul herself, but it all comes in this case Elizabeth. Elizabeth just wants to be who's Elizabeth. Doing, That's she's the, the actress. actress. Okay, yeah. um, you can check her out. She's a songwriter. She's a performer. Wow. She does everything. She's going to be a star one way or the other. That's cool. And so she's just she loves doing it. You know, she came in. She was prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, she knew her lines. She knew what she wanted to do. She was professional. It was chilly out that day. Oh, it was freezing. We, yeah, she was uh, a very I made good a mistake. I had to get the the, the the jump rope, and I just got a cheap jump rope, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like weighted down, so like she had to keep doing these jump rope scenes and acting at the same time. And she was great. And you know, to Katie's credit, it's just in your personality, Katie. That that's how you are with actors, whether mm-hmm. it's a child or you know an adult. That's just your personality. And compliments will get you yeah, everywhere. That's yeah, really nice. it's but really it was, cool. It was, yeah, I mean, I was right there when you were working with Elizabeth and with everyone, and you were just being yourself. She opens the she opens the first episode, the little girl, mm-hmm. and it is very uh, it, it grabs you right away because it, you could tell it's an indie film. I can tell it's an indie film by the sound mm. right away. And then you're like, oh, this little girl. And then it gets creepy immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, she she did a good job of playing up that aspect for sure. And she's talking about Ivy there on the sidewalk. And, and I'll say, you know, we're making fun of the stage mothers, but they, they can sometimes be a part of the casting process, if you know what I mean. Like you... Is that a good thing? You kind of want to avoid <laughs> working with any crazy stage moms if you can, because that's like a whole other can of worms that can be open mm-hmm. but they were amazing they were great but yeah. she wants to, the young girl want jessica yeah elizabeth elizabeth yeah. no she you could tell that she was there of her own her own volition she was definitely That's... not being pushed into doing anything and right for the horrific content too is especially good that her mom let her let her do it i don't know if she she didn't see she the hasn't episode, watched the right? whole episode no. and, and katie was kind enough to just make an ep, uh, an edit of just the opening part of it because yeah. she's uh, not old enough at this point to watch uh, the whole episode. Really? Yeah, and her that wasn't mom? her. That wasn't her. Her mom asked not because she didn't want her to see it, because she knew her daughter would get nightmares and get scared. Oh wow! She was open to you know. So now she has her own you know little version of the opening scene that she can watch. She can show to her friends. G rated. And yeah, yes. and when and when she's old enough, she'll she'll watch the whole. She'll see the disgusting, truth. inappropriate like, thing oh, that she was part of. Oh, how did I get into this? How <laughs> it's get so into this cute project? how we censor and lie to our children. <sighs> They'll learn eventually. It's like my my yeah. nephew is. Oh, I think he's eleven or twelve now. And my sister's been like, oh, I think it's my first film is like a, a stoner zombie comedy called Eat Me. You uh-huh. know, it's not really kid friendly, but she's like, I think he's getting old enough where he can watch the movie now. I'm like, oh, maybe a few more years, you know. It's still, yeah. He still seems so young, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to taint him by. Well, it's also the, the brain; movie. it's not developed; it can't process things like when you're an adult. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't know how to handle things. That's why kids get traumatized because mm-hmm. something happens. They just, I don't know how to process it, and right. then they're scarred for life. I don't want to scar anybody for life. <laughs> <laughs> At least no one you're related to. Right, exactly. No one I have to see for the rest of my life. I care about how I've scarred them. But wouldn't it be great to make a film and scar someone for life to just leave that permanent indentation? I guess. I, I mean, you're know. making I feel like films. I feel like I've been scarred for life by some films. Jeez. <laughs> I don't want to name any names. But yeah, hey, making something memorable that someone 
thinks about, that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, what are you going for? What's your prime objective? What's a reaction do you want from an audience when you make a horror film? Uh, I mean, entertainment is just the number one thing, whether that's like laughing nervously at something they see on screen or jumping because they're scared about something. But I'm just a believer in the idea of movies being the ultimate escape. And so Mm -hmm. as long as I can make something that's taking people out of their lives for five minutes or an hour, you know, I'm happy. Well, there's a real place for horror because it can be very frightening, but I think subconsciously you also know that you're safe. Yeah, definitely. You know, you're watching it behind a screen. It's it's okay. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the big reasons I love horror films. Like, I love I love being scared, but I'm kind of wimpy in terms of, like, you know, like I want to be able to control it in a way. And so right. I love watching horror movies by myself at home. My husband, actually, he likes horror movies not as much as I do. So I use my, my time alone to watch the really bad ones that I don't think he'll like. But there have been a few where I literally do have to pause and stand up for a minute. And I like that. Are I horror like movies more scary alone or more scary with people? For me, alone. Alone. I, don't know. I that like that sense. my brain kind of like, I don't know, like I start hearing noises in the house or I, don't, I like being scared. I like scaring myself. Yeah, that's interesting because comedy is the alone. opposite. It's usually comedy is funnier with, when you watch with people. I think laughing is a contagious kind of thing too. So and it could fear. be like a... Fear is a lonesome feeling. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Did we figure something out today? I think I just did. I always hope to. Yeah. I'll have to do some reflection to, to think about it. Did we did we wrap up that film? Are we at the end of the process? I mean, you're dealing with the actors' egos, and you push them as far as they can go. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with that from recording people's music. Yeah. You know, you push them to get the best performance, and then you got to know when to back up and when to know that you, they've reached their limit. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you just got to accept it for what it is. I think that the, the biggest thing, well, maybe not the biggest thing, but such a big thing is just being flexible and knowing that things will not go as planned. Oh, yes. That, you know shit will get screwed up along the way and you just have to be patient and flexible. I know, but I know when I'm working on a, a project, if I see that there's a, like the one of the performances isn't that good and then you're like, ugh, do I replace it? Do I, you, you know, just take it out and risk the person? It's just so hard to deal with all that stuff, all those social politics. Yeah, I, I was thinking the other day of, I've certainly had to cut certain actors from films before, not because of their performance necessarily, but just because it was a scene that wasn't needed and we were running long. But I, it's never easy to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? It's never but easy to. If their performance was so captivating, you would have kept it in. N- not necessarily. <laughs> if it weren't pushing the story forward, and if it were just there for just to for myself to pat myself on the back you know it's like that's not doing anybody any good you feel bad at the end of the day because the person you know you know that they came out and in my cases on my my projects they came out and did it all for free and so you feel even more bad about them not being in the final product their only pay was six bagels basically (laughs) (laughs) one of them was you know a really good bagel but still so if they come to you complaining you'd be like hey shut up you got six bagels You got paid. No. Um, no, I always feel bad about it. I yeah. Know. Yeah, it's never easy. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, if you're on set and pushing someone, it's like you can only push so much before you're wasting time or just wasting energy, you know, and mm-hmm. kind of got to decide on the on the spot. Yeah. 
it's not easy to get a, the best performance out of someone and to know to be able to gauge when you've hit they've hit their limit yeah of uh, their limit of what their ego can take or what their talents can deliver yeah or sometimes just getting so involved in like you start thinking too much about what you're being told and not doing the actual action and then it's like a whole other thing that you end up seeing mm -hmm. on screen so. right you have to think about how you're communicating with them exactly sometimes just giving them a couple minutes alone to just yeah. get back in the zone exactly mm-hmm yeah, I've recorded, like, sometimes if I record a vocalist and the energy isn't quite right, I'll ask them to just jog in place or run, get their mm -hmm. energy going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Little tricks like that to get people in that right emotional frame of mind for that part. Sort of like Rick Grimes on Walking Dead. I was reading how that actor likes to, in between takes, he's just, like, constantly running around. Like, he definitely likes to stay in character, like, after after the yell cut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, every every actor approaches that differently. But, yeah, as a director, you have to let that actor do, do what he thing. or she needs yeah, to, exactly. to get there. Yeah. yeah, Paul McCartney, to get that gruff vocal delivery in Helter Skelter, he kept trying it, and he couldn't get that gruffness out of his voice, so he just stayed up all night, went into the studio after, like, a night of partying and drinking, and then he finally got it. I didn't know that. So yeah. That's great. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Whatever get it takes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, then it's all filmed and you have to edit it all together, huh? Mm-hmm. And now is that an easy part because you've already storyboarded it? You just got to sync the audio with the video? And yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, there are always things that come up on set that take us off the storyboards, you know, and so you have to kind of find the the glue there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for the most part, what we shoot should be a pretty good replication of what's in the storyboard. I guess that would be a good, job. that would be a good place to have an editor, separate editor hired. You'd be like, here's all the footage. Here's the storyboard. It's all technical stuff. There's not all that much creativity and mm -hmm. that at that point. Yeah. So you can have them edit it and then you can kind of color correct it, add the special effects, maybe rechop some things. Yeah. And again, if they have a good, you know, if, if, the script supervisor and director have kept good notes. They'll know already, like, okay, this take's going to be useless. This take's good. This take's good. Or, mm -hmm. you know, like, they'll have some guidelines to go from. So mm -hmm. we probably make my job as an editor a lot easier, actually. Be less <laughs> Maybe time. next one. Yeah, yeah, less time consuming. Is it hard to sync the audio with the video? Or do you just use uh, that program, Pluralize? It was Pluralize, and I know you're using Final Cut. I've been editing in Adobe Premiere, which... I haven't used the newer version of Final Cut, so I can't mm -hmm. say how intensive it is, but I found Premiere easier, and in Premiere, it's super easy to, to sync, sync stuff. Yeah, as long as you've got that, the clap, right, and it's matching the audio from your on-camera take with your audio. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's finding that clap sound and then matching it up. You ever have to nudge it a little I bit? I do, yeah, sometimes mm -hmm. I will. Because there is a little bit of a time delay sometimes, the space between that vo the actual voice and the camera. Yeah, and I've noticed also, too, if there's any sort of loud noise within the shot, like it sometimes will think that's the clap and you have to kind of go in and right. line things up. But yeah, no, technology's made it a lot easier than mm -hmm. how I imagine it was back in the day. Mm -hmm. So I'm very thankful for that. So then everything's edited together and maybe you've changed some things or maybe it's exactly like your storyboard. Then... You color correct it yourself. Yeah? I have, yeah. Okay. Add special effects. And the special effects and disturbances is really impressive. Yeah, and that was all, that's all Jeff Gibson, actually, our DP and an editor on one of the episodes. Um, 
sort of brought to the group a few options of what ghost ivy could look like and we mm-hmm. all sort of decided on a look and that was all a lot of after effects compositing work and whatnot and uh, that was in adobe after effects exactly, nice yeah. so he did a lot of work on that i don't know how many hours in in all a lot but uh is that the program people use for a lot of uh special effects like is star wars using adobe after effects um they might be using something there's like other super intensive editing programs like i'm this is a little tangent, but what I do to try and make actual money because I'm not making money on my movies, I do writing for a law firm and a lot of the work we do is representing artists in the mm-hmm. field. And so I just learned about this program called Mystica. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. But it's like this new editing, it's like a actual editing software setup that's used for color grading and effects and 3D mm-hmm. stereoscopic stuff. So mm-hmm. that whole field is like... There's so many, you know, there's Avid, there's like so many different things people use. So certainly I'd say all the Adobe stuff is like what has become the industry standard, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you can get so intense with the programs and what's out there today. Yeah, After Effects is pretty amazing in and of itself. Okay, so the hardest part I would imagine and the most annoying part is that after the film is done, you've got to find, what, a distributor or just market it? Yeah, or they're sort of hand in hand even, yeah. You find a distributor, try and find a distributor first? If you're able to and can do it, yeah. Find a distributor first and let their team do all the marketing and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Usually the way it happens, though, is that you're trying to create... Well, I should step back a second. There is the school of thought where people will finance their projects. Mm -hmm. If they've had good stuff in the past, they go to distributors and say hey, I've got this new project, I want to shoot it, you know, will you give me some money for the production and you'll get the rights for it for distribution? Like, mm-hmm. that's one of the ways you can do it. Um, or if you have the completed project, you just kind of go to these different marketplaces to find a distributor. Right. And that involves promoting and, you know, doing all that fun stuff. Do you promote first and then try to get a distributor? In the past, I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then submit to film festivals as well? Yeah, and this can all be kind of concurrent as well, too. Yeah. Right. So I imagine the more publicity you get, if you if you have a successful screening at Sundance, for example, you have distributors just coming at you. Yeah, absolutely, because all that stuff's just going to raise the profile of of the project, mm-hmm. and that's what makes the distributors perk up their ears and seek you out. You know. Now, yeah. when you finish a film, do you uh, screen it in front of test groups, or even if it's just a group of friends? Yeah, no, we definitely you, have. Yeah, you have. Uh-huh. So Usually, you, very small, like just a close crew of either people involved in the project or just like really, you know, friends that I trust and I know will be open and give, you know, good feedback, I would useful imagine, feedback. Yeah, I would imagine that would be the final step because you can, might see something that you didn't see and then you can re- recut it a little bit. Exactly. I'd say that even becomes before the color grading is like the last thing that you do only right. because you want to make sure you're not color correcting stuff that you're going to go back and edit anyway you know Mm -hmm. um but yeah you'd show that first cut and hopefully everything hits the way it's supposed to and Mm -hmm. if not you make those changes and then you go into the final audio mixing and the color correction are there companies that you can use that that just provide test groups of people oh definitely yeah you could just hire them for an hour or something yeah for sure have you ever used anything like that i have not no that'd be interesting right well, it goes back, we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, the, the changes from the script to the final film. And I was just watching, I forget what the name of the series is, but it's sort of this, like, behind the scenes of interesting movie scenes. And they're talking about the film Seven. 
and David Fincher, you know, the original script, which wasn't written by David Fincher, it was written by somebody else, I forget who. Um, the original script was how the film turned out, mm-hmm. but studio executives did not like it at all, and their whole feedback from, like, audiences and people who read the script were like, this is too negative, it can't go in this dark place. And I guess there were numerous revisions of the script, but by some accident, the final version that got sent to David Fincher was the version... I don't want to give it away if people haven't seen the film. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, that was something that it was because people read the script and happened to think it was, you know, too dark and unsellable. It would have right. changed that film like so drastically. Mm-hmm. Or like the, another film, National Lampoon, the, they didn't go to Wally World in the original movie and the way oh, the, really? the film ended. The they, sh- they tacked that on months afterwards because they had a test audience uh-huh. that saw it and was like, what the hell? Like the movie just ended and there was no, you know, there was no, no closure. Yeah, they had no closure. And so right. they went back and they filmed the whole ending at Wally World. So and, it's and like. cast John Candy. Yeah, I guess he yeah, wasn't guess he in the film at all otherwise. It, yeah. yeah. Right. But if you watch it now, the son, what's his name? The son Russell, character Rusty. is like, he's gone through puberty, yeah. you know? Um, Anthony Michael Hall. But that was all because of audience feedback, you right. know? So. Uh, I mean, if it's some, if I were to do that, and if it were something that drastic where the audience didn't like understand something, I would think about going back. But at that point, like there shouldn't be so much that you're changing anything drastic. And then from a creative perspective, it's like, all right, do you give the mainstream what they want, or you're like, no, 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 this is how it goes down. You'll come around to me. Right. Uh, the the difference between the auteur and you know the gun for hire, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's almost a difference of leading or following. Yeah. It's, it's also what you know, people think the audience might like today might be different in a year when, when things are released. Exactly. A lot of the greatest artists are ahead of the mainstream. So. Mm, that's true. I think we did it. I think we made a film. All right. We storyboarded. We yes. storyboarded how to make a film. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. You could plot this out and follow it as your own guideline. Make a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I encourage you to make a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel good. I don't really have any further questions. Did we miss anything? I mean, we could probably talk about a million other things, but I think that's that's a nice piece right there. Can, uh, can we give shout outs to the rest yeah, of the yeah, disturbances pl- people? Yeah, I know yeah. we didn't. We sort of mentioned names, yes, but yes. so Jeff Gibson, our DP, is amazing. He's fantastic. Jeff Ankler was the camera operator, and then the other team members that were with Matt, who came up with this brilliant idea, were. How do you pronounce Jessica's last name? I don't want to make... Taco. I Rit- think okay. I Jessica Ritaco, and we yes. think we're pronouncing that right. Mm. Sorry, Jessica, if you're Taco. hearing this, and, <laughs> and we're mispronouncing it. Um, June Naito, Artie Brennan, and Matt Kaplan, yeah. Patty Buckhayden, and lots of wonderful actors yes. as well. It's just a big love fest. We'll put a link in the show info, and uh, Excellent. I urge yeah, everyone I to watch it. it. Yeah. All four episodes, you can watch them now. All for free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really good work. Additionally, Katie has done lots of great work. Um, I don't know if you want to quickly plug any of those, or they're all you can watch, see them all, or get information on your website. Yeah, yeah. I think they're all like somewhere for free right now, yeah. actually. Um, so I mentioned eat, in their entirety, eat, really. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I couldn't find it. Well, I know um, Eat Me right now is on uh, snagfilms.com. Okay. And that's the whole film for free on snagfilms. And then if you have um, like Epics HD. Uh, who else is there? Like Comcast, I think has it. It's like an on-demand film. You can 
Do you have to have cable it. for that? A lot of times it's like, oh, it's streaming now. And then I'm like, oh, I have to pay for it. It's not streaming now. It might be uh, It might be that it's actually through mobile. I don't know if it's mm. the cable channels necessarily. I, I, a lot I of the stuff I don't even have access to, so I can't check to make sure it's I there. I don't understand like, okay. how it works sometimes because I'm like, I get, I download the app to watch something. Then it's like, oh, you need Time Warner cable. I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have cable for television. Right. If I wanted to watch cable TV, I would just have it very confusing well now they're creating new accounts for you cord cutters now they're like oh wait we can charge people to have access to this stuff through our tablet that's what they should do i think yeah no i think they're starting to i just seen some ads for it yeah that would be smart but yeah eat me's for free and you can i mean there's there's some commercials which is kind of a bummer i don't mind gotta pay for um, it somehow right yeah yeah that's how it's that's how it's up there for free i guess it just sucks to have your film interrupted that's the thing and for us too like my big gripe is that you're watching the film and classic like all commercials on TV, the commercials are so loud. And so you get blasted mm-hmm. out of your chair every time a commercial mm-hmm. comes on. Um, but yeah, it's there and it's free. So I'm happy about that. People awesome. Watch it. Check out your website. We'll put this all in the show info. Thanks so much for coming and doing this. Thanks this for time. having me. And yeah. Having a chat. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.